I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. There are a select few humans in the world today who can rightfully say that they have been instrumental in the creation of something that has produced 20 billion social media impressions and raised nearly $2.5 billion to help others in a single year. But that is exactly what Asha Curran has done as co-creator of Giving Tuesday, the global online giving program that was created in 2012 to be, in her words, an antidote to Black Friday and Cyber Monday, the two days right after Thanksgiving that shamelessly celebrate mass consumption. Instead, Asha and co-founder Henry Timms envisioned a simple, open-source, customizable digital giving campaign that could help thousands of nonprofits raise funds in a unified day of giving. Now, nearly a decade on, Giving Tuesday has become a worldwide success, proving that Asha's concept of what she calls radical generosity is more than simply a possibility. It is actually a reality. Born in India, raised on the Lower East Side of New York City, and with a uniquely nonlinear life path, Asha brings a world of experience to her role as the CEO of Giving Tuesday. You know, imagine a world where everything that happens from the most shallow interaction that you have with a stranger on the street to the policies that governments all over the world create that affect their citizens were driven by generosity. We would live in a very different world. Nasha, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for being with us. It is my pleasure, Grant. It's so nice to see you. You and I have known each other for a while because I got to know you. I had the great privilege of getting to know you as a juror for the Heinz Awards. And I also got to see you during that time step in full time into your the role that you now play as the head of the independent CEO, I should say, of the Independent Giving Tuesday, which has become a wildly successful global generosity movement, uh, and indeed with record-breaking donation amounts in 2020. Before we dive into all of that, can you give me a little bit of background about how the concept of Giving Tuesday originally materialized and a primer on how it works? So Giving Tuesday was created by Henry Timms, who you also know, who at that time worked with me at the 92nd Street Y, which is a big cultural institution on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where I actually worked for 15 years. And one day Henry came into the office and he said, I had this great idea, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. That's what he said. I think the clarity of the idea was its brilliance, right? Mm-hmm. There's just nothing about that idea that we don't immediately recognize, right? We, we understand the concept of a day to do something, to come together around a moment, to come together to celebrate something. And to celebrate giving was just not something that existed yet. And so the way that it works is we think of the day as a day of celebration of something that we do all year round. So Giving Tuesday is a year round movement. The day itself that still falls after Cyber Monday is the 
the big day to celebrate, just, right? Just like you would think about a wedding anniversary. You got to pay attention to your marriage all year round. Right. When one day you like really come together to celebrate it and make a big deal. And that's sort of how we think about that day. And it was about doing something for a cause, doing something for a neighbor, doing something for humanity in whatever way felt meaningful to uh, an individual person. And that was sort of a, a, a new thing, really. It was It was sort of not focusing on philanthropy as big philanthropy or big dollar amounts, but really the ability of every ordinary person to make a a positive social impact with a small act. And it turned out that people just felt deeply resonant with that. If somebody has never been told before that they have the power in their own hands to make such a positive impact through the manifestation of that universally held value, the realization of that is very, very powerful. And they feel that agency and it's really addictive and then they want to exercise it more. Generosity is generative. And once it started growing, it just kept multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. So fast forward nine years and, you know, Giving Tuesday sort of immediately crossed borders and it immediately became about something more than just making a donation, although not not about making a donation, right? That, right, that is right, one way right. to express generosity, but it's not nearly the only way. Yeah. And I think it's a particularly Western way to look at generosity, right? To reduce it to its most transactional form. Right. You know, I'm thinking about Henry Timms walking into your office and saying, I've got this idea. Let's go do this thing. You go do this thing. And you're off and running. Did you have any conception about how big it would get? And I don't mean to put it in crass Western dollars and cents terms, but last year, I think the numbers are that you raised $2.47 billion, 34.8 million people in the U.S. alone gave on a single day. Did you have any idea what you were unleashing at that time? It, in no way. And, and I don't think it's crass to, to mention the money. You know, that, that amount of money was donated in 24 hours. That, that is an extraordinary amount of money, particularly in a pandemic year. I don't think I, I could have had any conception. And I think that's a great thing. Often when we launch something new and we're asked, what is, a, what is winning look like, right? Or what does success look like? Or whatever other jargon we use to think about what our ultimate vision is for our work. We set those parameters and they form a sort of ceiling, right? And so winning looks like hitting that ceiling. And we just didn't have any ceiling for Giving Tuesday. It was just blue sky because nobody had ever done anything like that before. So there was no benchmarking, right? There were no available metrics to grab onto or anything like that. And all of the things we did were fairly low resource, right? Giving Tuesday was, was literally launched on us walking into, you know, different offices and universities and thinking anybody who would host us for a meetup to kind of talk about this idea and gather wisdom, you know, holding a plate of cheese in one hand and a bottle of wine in the other. And, and that and a few plane tickets is basically what we spent to get it off the ground. But even that first year was bigger than we could have imagined. And the growth of it ever since then has been just in dollar terms, 25% more every single year and higher public awareness and more and more and more countries. And so, no, I, I never could have foreseen that. And I really tried to approach it with a balance between having a strategic vision and 
and real plans and real programs, but also just learning from the community every step of the way, right? They really have the wheel. And the, the best things that have happened out of Giving Tuesday have come from the broader community. I love to remember the very first organization that took Giving Tuesday and did something else with it. It was an organization called Dress for Success, which is a nonprofit that provides clothing to women. Yeah, we know it. We know it well. Yeah. So they did in the very first year, 2012, they were one of the first organizations to take part and they did a campaign called Giving Shoes Day. <laughs> and it was like, it was one of those moments where we thought like, should we issue a cease and desist letter? And, and <laughs> they have to use the name as we've created and they have to use our logo. And the truth is a lot of organizations would have done that, right? Organizations are brilliant at cease and desist letters and you have to use my branding and you have to use my logo. And like, we made that decision that now like, no, actually it was great. We loved it. And we encouraged that kind of adaptation from that moment on. It's not giving Wednesday. It's not giving Thursday. It's giving Tuesday. It's healing a bruise day. It's donate to charity, you can't lose day. It's a chance to chase away the blues day. It's give a child a pair of shoes day. It's giving someone the freedom to choose day. It's a day to give back. It's all up to you day. Join the global movement this Giving Tuesday. You're, I think, uniquely set up not to be an organization that dominates and controls the thing you call Giving Tuesday. I think the whole concept from the beginning was how do we give it away and share it and let it become its own thing. So you're in more than 70 countries, but it's not the same in 70 countries, is it? How does one launch a movement and get out of the way and yet still somehow remain in charge. It has also been an evolution. So in the early years, when we would talk about the future of Giving Tuesday, what we actually imagined back then was that we would give it entirely away, right? Like that eventually it would become like Cyber Monday and put as many tools and resources into the world as we could. But then we just assumed that it would just sort of float into the world and we would let it go and we would move on and work on other things. But I think what happened over the course of those years and the years that came immediately afterward was that one realization I had was that there is a middle ground between a totally decentralized enterprise, movement, whatever, mm -hmm. and a command and control top-down institution. Hi, I'm Henry Timms, and I'm the co-author of New Power. As we look across the world right now, uh, it's all feeling very chaotic. It's all feeling very disconnected. We have the unexpected rise of people like Barack Obama or Donald Trump. We have these amazing platforms that have risen up in our lives like Uber or Facebook. We have these social movements which have sprung out of nowhere like Me Too or Never Again. And what all of these things have in common is what this book is all about, which is new power. New power is this idea of the ability to harness the energy of the connected crowd. That what was really shifting wasn't just technology, what was really shifting was how power is flowing and what that means for us all. We wrote this book as a manual. We wanted people everywhere to understand the tools of this new world. How do you spread ideas? Uh, how do you raise money? How do you think about leadership? This is what the book's all about. Many of the organizations and leaders who are getting new power rights aren't those on the side of the angels. 
We're seeing this rise of platforms that shift things away from us. We're seeing the rise of strongmen leaders around the world. So part of our book is to encourage a debate and encourage that all of us start thinking about new power. And we make sure that at the end of the day, this rise of new power truly makes a lot more people more powerful. So when we think about things in, in Henry's new power language, many people describe Giving Tuesday as a new power movement, but I actually don't. I think of it as a hybrid, and I don't think that it's a movement that exists elsewhere. It's not decentralized. We describe it as distributed. It does have core guiding principles of co-ownership and open adaptation, which is what you're talking about. So Giving Tuesday in Tanzania and Giving Tuesday in Brazil and Giving Tuesday in Little Rock and Giving Tuesday in Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. Look like Giving Tuesday in those places. And the local leaders who run those movements know what generosity should look like in those communities, right? Mm -hmm. We would never presume to tell them that. They do it, they take it, they change it, they are in charge. And yet there is this deep, deep sense of interconnection and interdependence. They are accountable to one another, right? So, so they are independent and they are unique. At the same time, they form this very, very tightly knit peer learning community that has as its guiding culture a sense of accountability and trust and transparency. And more than anything, I think, and the thing that I love most about it, it has this sense of a success that I find with the movement isn't really the best success it can be until I've shared it and someone else has replicated and even improved upon it. And it also provides momentum and guidance. And I don't mean that that guidance all comes from us, right? I mean that it comes collectively from the community, that we find that we feel that we belong to something that is bigger than our than ourselves and that we feel that, that we can at the same time manifest generosity completely uniquely as we see fit and also speak with a unified voice as a movement in believing in this concept of radical generosity and believing that we all want to build a more generous world and we all share that mission and that vision yeah. even if the way we get there is really unique. So let's talk about that concept for a moment of radical generosity which is a phrase that I love and I think it expresses in the era in which we're le living, which sometimes can seem like a mean-spirited one. The idea that generosity is somehow radic a radical act doesn't feel far-fetched at the moment. And I'm curious what you mean by radical generosity and how you see that playing out, not just in a U.S. context, but globally. Uh, yeah, I want to start out by clarifying that what I mean by it does not have to mean what everybody means by it, right? Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. That's probably a disclaimer you have to throw in throughout this interview. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Given, given yeah. the nature of the model. And right. so let's stipulate as to that. that right. You're, uh, that, that is 100% right. true. So the, the evolution of it being sort of very focused on the transactional, very focused on a day, very focused on America, right? All of that changed spontaneously. And as the global growth happened in particular, I became Delta's very, very favorite customer and traveled so, so extensively. And I learned so much by visiting Giving Tuesday movements in their own spaces and mm -hmm. being with those leaders and learning and it, it, it was just a, a magical thing to learn about, right? That the way that we think about generosity 
is different than the way that, that a lot of other countries think about generosity or a lot of other cultures or a lot of other religions, right? Everybody thinks about generosity. It exists every single place in every single culture. The way it manifests is really different. In many African countries, for example, there are various forms of rotating credit traditions. A whole community, each contributing money to a common pot so that when somebody needs it, whether it be because they've had a baby or are buying a new home, right, it goes to them. It just goes to them. And then the pot begins to be refilled again. The generosity that manifests in the lack of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and every man for himself kind of mentality is the kind of generosity that I began to see. And I began to think of that as a very radical form of generosity. It's the difference between thinking about how we can feed a hungry person and how we can think about how wrong it is for anybody to be hungry in the first place. It's about the difference between thinking about an act of generosity as something that happens between a benevolent haver and a needy somebody, right, which implies hierarchy. And instead, thinking about it as something that manifests our shared humanity and our mutuality and how we're all in this together. And that gives people humanity and dignity and that gives the giver just as much as it gives the receiver. A phrase that you've used in discussing this concept is that it should make us think that the suffering of others should be as intolerable to us as our own suffering. Is that the core of what you see happening? It is. In fact, you just use this phrase, which is that the giver gets as much as the receiver. In many ways, I think actually the giver gets more. Do you find that people are open to that concept in multiple cultures that they are able to get past the hierarchy? It takes people aback sometimes. There, There is a moment yeah. of, wait a minute, how could the suffering of a total stranger possibly be as important to me as the suffering of my own child, my own sister? Mm. And we think about generosity and love as being completely co-equal values. We can start to think about love being a value that we express toward those nearest and dearest to us. And it's co-equal value generosity being the way we express essentially exactly the same value outward. And if we begin to think that it doesn't actually take anything away, it doesn't mean I love my children less, right, to be thinking about my responsibility to the humans that I don't know, it actually greatly expands my ability to love my own children. It is not difficult at all, but you find it changing your the core ways that you behave because you're not looking at, you're not looking at giving as a sort of carbon offset, right? Right. Oh, that's a brilliant, that's a brilliant metaphor, by the way, because I think a lot of folks do, right? I mean, we all do. We're all, we're all prone to that at times thinking about this is how I inoculate myself against whatever karmic price I have to pay in the world, right? I mean, there are entire branches of the sector that believe that, right? That you make a lot of money by any means necessary so that you can give as much of it as possible away. There's another way to look at it, which is that your generosity should manifest in the way you choose to live your life. The systems that you choose to take part in, the systems that you choose to fight against, that it is as much a part of your DNA as as anything else and not something to put off till later. Right, right. And I won't get all political here, but we do live within this system of rampant, unfettered capitalism. No matter what, it is impossible for us 
to get out of that thinking that that everything is about a transaction. And so I make all my money and I, I live my life and I care about my family and friends and that's it. And, that, and then I go and give my donations right. and then I'm a good right. person. Well, I think we so often see in this work people thinking that they may have a duty to help, they may want to help, but they really struggle with the idea that they get something from helping, that, that alleviating the suffering of someone else brings something back to them. And your model actually, I think, perfectly expresses why that is the case. So since you touched on politics, though, let's go there for Uh-oh. a moment. <laughs> and there is a notion that Philanthropy and generosity are wonderful, but they're really just a way for the rich to alleviate their guilt or to, even worse, to cover up for an agenda that is self-serving. So it is like buying the carbon credits. By the way, I think personally, it's a horribly generalized critique of the sector, and I think it misses a lot. And I'm curious to know what your reaction leading the world's biggest global generosity movement is to that thinking. The first thing I always feel is that I'm glad that I can keep an eye on that conversation from the vantage point of working on a movement that is about non-billionaire givers, <laughs> right? right? Like right, our Giving yeah. Tuesday is about, you know, everyday givers giving in all sorts of different ways. And it is, I, I am not, you know, wrestling every day with our place in the conversation about billionaire giving. I agree with you that it is very overgeneralized. I think where I start with this is we are all living in a broken system, mm-hmm. billionaires and non-billionaires alike. I'm not saying it's tough for billionaires to live within that system right. at all. <laughs> yeah, it has yeah. absolutely disproportionately favored them off the backs of everybody else. But the system itself and the tax policy and so forth has to change. Look at Mackenzie Scott as an example. Mackenzie Scott gives away another $2.7 billion to charity. Another? Mackenzie Scott is one of the richest women in the world. Today, she announced, in fact, that she's donating more than $2.7 billion to charitable organizations this year. Mackenzie Scott, of course, used to be Mackenzie Scott Bezos. She was married to Jeff Bezos, who's the founder of Amazon. When they divorced a couple of years ago, that meant she was worth about $36 billion. But now, owning 4% of Amazon stock means that she's worth not $36 billion, but more like $60 billion. And that's even with giving away $8 billion in a, in a year, right? Giving away $8 billion as fast as she can. Amazon is worth so much as a company. Giving away billions of dollars a year doesn't affect the fact that her net worth still just, just keeps going up. She can't right. give away those billions fast enough, right? right? And she's giving them away faster than anybody else. And right. she's still making money faster than she can even hand that money out to organizations and movements. It reminds me of, I don't know if if you know Harry Potter world, Grant, but the the scene... I I do. There's a scene in the final movie where they're at Gringotts and there's a chamber where there's a spell where when the goblets hit each other, they multiply and they multiply so fast they're they're burying the children inside them. Think about the money being like that. It has gone crazy. The inequities cannot be addressed fast enough because the money is outpacing everything else. And meanwhile, 
people are suffering and suffering more and more. And I think where philanthropy is within that conversation is in a moment where we can point out everything that's wrong. And are we willing to really reckon with our place in perpetuating some of those inequities? That's a very difficult conversation for people to have because some people are sitting in the powerful position of the power imbalance and some people need the money. And so they're they're afraid to have the conversation One thing about Giving Tuesday that I'm really proud of is that we have supported and championed and believed in and given agency to local leaders in communities since the word go. It has been absolutely core to our growth and our philosophy, just because it seemed so incredibly obvious that why would I think that I know how to run a movement in Chile, right? Obviously, somebody in Chile is going to know how to run Giving Tuesday there. And also because when you distribute the work, you're distributing the work. Everybody does less of it. It just makes a lot more sense. And now we say, we talk about this a lot, and I'm really hoping that we can put our money where our mouth is when we talk about that. Because I think we, we philanthropy and philanthropy, we really don't have a broad history of thinking about devolving power to the most local place. We're going to have to get out of the model and the mindset of supporting the same sort of top-down organizations that follow the same models that have largely white, largely male leaders. Are we going to get out of that paradigm? Because if we do, it's going to be uncomfortable and we're going to have to work through that period of discomfort. But if we don't, we're having false conversations. One reason it's so challenging to find support for Giving Tuesday for a really long time until we had a lot of years of impact to show for it because our model is messy, right? Or, or at least right. see, I don't think it's messy. I think it's like a fractal pattern. I could see, I could see yeah. the matrix when I look at it, but I think from the, from an outside perspective, it's like, wait, we're going to, we're going to give this organization money and then they're going to support all these people all around the world who we don't know, don't have any control over. I do want to come back though, to this question of does generosity bridge divides between people. You know, if we are living in a time where politics infects everything and there is this partisan sense of right and left and, you know, conservative and liberal and Republican and Democrat, I'm curious, um, have you encountered any particularly compelling models of how generosity is helping people change those conversations in their own communities? This brings us back to our conversation about radical generosity, right? Right. Does generosity bridge divides between people, bring people together, or does it divide them further? And I think it depends how you approach it, right? If you Mm -hmm. think, if you're approaching it with your carbon offset mentality, then no, it doesn't, it doesn't bridge, it doesn't bring people together. It excuses bad behavior. It can be, sad to say, a form of othering, right? I I donated to a homeless shelter and now I don't have to think about those homeless people because the truth is I never wanted to think about them in the first place, right? It makes right. me too uncomfortable. It's the old system of buying indulgences yeah, is, it is what that is. What yeah. that is. Yeah. I think there's modern forms of that everywhere we look, right? right? right. And I get it. I mean, I, it's not that I don't get that psychology. I do. I mean, I, I think I have my own journey in learning about all of this. It made me look at many things that I did that were not truly generous behaviors. And mm. I, I still do every single day of my life, I'm sure. But I think approached in that way of mutuality, in that way of reciprocity, of what I owe to other people and what they owe to me, because we all live on this planet together, that it absolutely bridges, divides, and brings people together and allows people to see the humanity in others that they might not otherwise have done. And the things that I see through Giving Tuesday are small-scale and ultra-meaningful efforts, there are small things like uh, we have a Giving Tuesday leader 
in Jackson, Tennessee, and she ran a Giving Tuesday campaign for several years called Give Back Jack. And one of the things she had done was to create little free libraries around her community, right? This one woman, she sought a micro grant, and I mean like 2,000 bucks maybe, to turn all those little free libraries into little free pantries because so many people were hungry, were having food insecurity. Then she began to gather this army of volunteers who wanted to join her in doing this. And at this point, she has 2,000 volunteers who loop continuously around town, making sure that the boxes are filled with things that are needed in those communities. So if they're in a community, people who are actually experiencing homelessness, they will have things like feminine hygiene equipment, sleeping bags, right? Warm blankets, pillows, et cetera. But part of the mandate of the volunteers is also to actually just sit and talk. She's ended up being recognized by the mayor of her town. There there was a day named after the effort to watch (laughs) this happen. It is, it's amazing, right? And it just shows that this one lovely idea can sort of lead to how it inspires other people She's just formed a whole a whole community. And then there's a whole leadership aspect of it, too. She is taking charge of her generosity effort, right? She is she has become right. a woman of influence in her community because she has led this whole thing. So it's things like that that I see that really have such a powerful narrative arc that it generates and generates and generates and generates better and better and better things and more and more meaning and more and more recognition of our shared humanity. In her community, that is very much an effort that is happening across political divides and across all kinds of demographics. And that is her intention. Those are like the most meaningful things that I ever see out of the movement. And I see those on every continent. You know, one of the challenges that I think people are wrapping their heads around, especially since the pandemic, is the generosity of individuals versus the generosity of, say, governments and and corporations. And there was a Fast Company article that appeared pre-pandemic that had as its headline, big companies donate a smaller percentage of their income than regular people. There's a shocker. And said, while businesses laud themselves for giving 1% of their pre-tax profits to charity, most people who give individually give at least double that. Do you think it's possible for us to even that divide with the institutional givers like corporations? No, I don't. And I I hate to sound so cynical about this. Mm. I really do. But I don't think that as long as quarterly balance sheets are the main drivers of the behaviors of corporations, that there is really any incentive for them to engage in meaningful, world-changing Philanthropy. I personally, I won't get on a soapbox about this grant. And 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 this is your opportunity. Well, Go this for is it. not. This is only me. I just want to clarify. This is yeah. not in any way a, a Giving Tuesday position. Lots mm-hmm. of corporations do wonderful things with Giving Tuesday. Employee focused things, outward focused things, etc. This is yeah, right. this is just a personal opinion. I would rather see corporations pay their workers a, a living wage. I would rather mm. see them, you know, really focus on the lives of the people that they employ rather than using philanthropy as, this is not true across the board, but largely a PR tool. Yeah, There are absolutely corporations that have deeply held values. Again, the system that they operate in for their shareholders does not incentivize them to prioritize those values over their profits. It's actually such a great answer, and I appreciate the candor of that answer because it would actually be transformative, transformative. in terms of most of the most of the work that is done today by philanthropy. 
Well, I think it's exactly the same conversation as you referenced yeah. earlier, right? The charge that the ultra high net worth philanthropists are essentially whitewashing their behavior by giving things away. I think yeah. you could make exactly that same parallel with right. corporations. It's a, it's a sort of deflection tactic. It's like, if you're looking here where I'm giving all the fancy money, you're not looking here, right, where I'm, uh-huh. where I'm lobbying against the minimum wage. I want to shift to talking about leadership and mentorship and how you came into the, your own philosophy of leadership. Who have been your most important mentors and wh- what is the takeaway that you share with others that you've gained from your mentors? Henry has been my most important mentor. He mm-hmm. took time out of his own work to make sure I got better. He was able to be what I perceived as very, very mean to me sometimes, but was really just very honestly um, characterizing where I yeah. could do better. <laughs> and then the truth is, look, I mean, we all know that that kind of feedback is the very hardest to receive and the very most valuable that you will ever get. And I really, really focused on changing those things where I perceived them to be true. I characterize mentor as the role you put yourself in. It's not being more successful than someone else. It's not being more senior than someone else. It's not being more famous than someone else. It's putting yourself in the role of service to that person. I mean, I, so I started a program at the Y called Women in Power, and, uh, and I served as a mentor and still do in that program. I have found the people I've mentored to be far more achieved than I. I'm humbled by it. I, I think to my, and then I remind myself, I am the mentor in this equation because I'm putting myself in that seat. I'm putting themselves in the role of being of service to them for this year. And it's also largely kismet, right? I, I read a lot of particularly people giving advice to women to find mentors. You, you can't always just find one. You can't always just be assigned right. one, right? It is, it is, uh, it's a relationship like any other relationship. And when it really hits, it, it, it it's incredible. What are some of the lessons that you're learning from your networks about leadership now in the context of this distributed model that you're using? And what are you seeing that really give you in, new insights into leadership? And what's the best advice you're giving currently to young leaders? In the beginning, as leaders took the movement and made it their own in different communities, different causes, different countries, we loved them and we supported them and, and all of that. And we built a community out of them, but we largely looked at them as representatives of their movements, right? Mm. They were currently the face of Giving Tuesday, whatever it was. But we started to realize that they were really special people who, who shared an unbelievable amount of characteristics given the completely different contexts that they came from right? Totally different walks of life, not not just different countries, not just different languages, not just different ages, but like entirely different backgrounds, just like entirely different types of people. There is no one sort of prototype of the Giving Tuesday leader. But we realized over the course of the first few years, and it's growing, that they are all low ego, right? They're really community and team driven. They're all entrepreneurial, way, way more risk tolerant than at least I perceive the average sort of sector person to be really willing to take risks, highly collaborative, right? Always reaching out to others, always wanting to work together, really impatient. They want change now. They're willing to work over a long time horizon, but they want to make change like on a, on a continual basis. And those are incredible characteristics. And so we started to really focus on the people rather than the fact that they were representing those particular movements. So it's not us teaching them anything. It's all of us learning together. It's all of us thinking about what it means to be 
the next generation of social sector or social impact leader, right? What, what are those characteristics and how can we really bring them out? And most importantly, how can we inspire them in others, right? My, my main thing with leadership is I am not a good leader if I am not helping to create other leaders. If there's one legacy that I could have, that's it. And that actually brings me to the advice that I give to younger people, or particularly people who are just starting out in the sector. I always talk about the creating other leaders thing. You know, for my generation, it was always that, like, if you ask women my age who the worst bosses they've ever had were, they'll often say they were women, right? Because there was a, just a mentality for a long time and, and not, a, not a mysterious one of, like, I got here and I'm pulling up the ladder behind me, right? And I think that it just takes one generation to break that cycle. That's my belief, right? Just stop doing it entirely with my generation and then it just won't happen. It won't perpetuate because if you've if you've been helped and supported and mentored, you're going to do the same thing. I've heard that and observed that phenomenon myself, but I think it's exactly what you're describing, which is the result of a scarcity mindset, which people do when they think they're the only one who yeah. have to defend that yes. position. But when they feel generously supported, they're anxious to help others um, like themselves. Yes. So exactly. I am so inspired by what you're doing. I just have to say that. And I always concluded the program by asking our guests to complete the thought of what we can be, because the name of this program is We Can Be. And the question is, we can be what? How would you complete that sentence? We can be unified. We can be transformed. This time with Asha went by quickly, and I did not want it to end for reasons you've just heard. She has a palpable positivity and contagious energy, especially when she talks about the ever-widening giving community. I loved her enthusiasm when she spoke about the beauty of what she called small-scale and ultra-meaningful efforts like the Lending Library Project envisioned by a woman in Jackson, Tennessee, that evolved into a community-wide set of conversations about how they could expand those lending libraries to help others experiencing homelessness and food insecurity, eventually building an army of 2,000 volunteers who are collectively addressing the needs of their neighbors. And that is exactly why Asha is so passionate about the concept of radical generosity, because it is infectious in the best way. And as she says, it is happening across the country and the world right now, across political divides. And once it starts, it generates on and on. 